prepares us for our message today, so take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Beloved, we uh, now enter a very special moment in the evening before Christ's crucifixion. It's referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record, and we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship. Morris adds, No attempt to describe the prayer can give a just idea of its sublimity, its pathos, its touching yet exalted character, its tone at once of tenderness and triumphant expectation. And certainly I realized that even this week as I was reading through this chapter and particularly the text that we are going to consider this morning. So follow with me as I read just the first five verses of John 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, Before the world was. And may God add his blessing to the reading of those first five verses. You know, Jesus has just completed his instruction and messages to his disciples with those grand words of hope there in 16 verse 33. Where it says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. And then he says in chapter 17 verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. You see, it's with that promise and overcoming spirit that he prayed first for himself as we just read there. In the first five verses. And then he's going to pray for his disciples. In verses 6 to 19. And we're going to see that in the days to come. And then finally he prays for the future church. You and I. In verses 20 through 26. Now I do want you to know that this is not. And I repeat this. This is not the prayer of Gethsemane recorded in each of the other Gospels. But it certainly led into it. I say that because if you turn with me over to 18 and verse 1, it says this after the prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Cadrone, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And there he prayed. If you remember... To the Father, he says, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass for me, yet not what I will, what you wilt. That's what was at heart to his prayer, doing the will of the Father. Well, as you can see in this prayer here that preceded it, what the master focused on in the beginning of his prayer was his glory, glorifying the Father. The, the Greek word there is doxazo, speaking of bringing honor, to magnify, to clothe with splendor. Five times, five times he used the term. In fact, verses 1 and 5 are bookends to this section. And it recalls what he said earlier. Because this isn't the only time that he mentions it. Go back with me to chapter 12 in verse 23. And he just simply says here in John 12 in verse 23, And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was on his heart and mind. Go with me to chapter 13. Verses 31 to 33. Therefore, when he had gone out, and he's speaking there of Judas, who is now going to betray Jesus. It says, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so, to what was Jesus speaking about here? That is the question that I want to answer for you this morning. You see, because of the unity between the Father and the Son, Jesus being glorified is how He glorifies the Father. And that is captured there in verse 1. Essentially, it comes down to fulfilling the plan established by the Godhead before the foundation of the world. It's doing His will. That's what it is in a nutshell. And really, beloved, that is how God's children bring glory to Him. Amen? Doing His will. That's what it's about. Now, how that is accomplished may be different. between Jesus and his own, as we are going to see. But the principle is still captured here in this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what God's will is for us. And so I want you to consider with me three ways. Three ways Jesus looked to be glorified and to bring glory to the Father. And I will trust that it's going to inspire you as it has me. Uh, this past week is the first time that I've really sat down and studied this passage. And it's been very fresh to my own heart. My wife has gotten the brunt of it all week long as I've been sharing these things with her. As the Lord has been blessing my own heart. And so I trust that God will inspire you this morning. But more importantly, take what you hear and challenge your heart through what we see in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God will be honored in all of your life. And the first way is captured there, actually in the second half of verse 1 and also in verse 4. Look what Jesus said here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4. 
I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What was Jesus conveying here in those verses? It's simply this. He was glorified and brought glory to the Father through the work of sacrifice. Through the work of sacrifice. By work of sacrifice, I am talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. The very plan of redemption ordained before the foundation of the world. Now, of course, this could not happen if Jesus was not God and lived out a perfect life on this earth in preparation for the cross. And so, indeed, it was all a work of sacrificial service. Just as we read earlier from Philippians 2, 5 to 8, where Jesus left the realms of glory to come here to this earth, what humility. Take on the role of a servant and then die the death of the cross. I like how Jesus himself said it in Mark 10 in verse 45. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Now, interestingly, the master stated there in verse 1 that this time had come. It was just hours away from consummation. But in verse 4, he claimed that it was already completed. How do you reconcile that? (laughs) Well, in his mind, it was a done deal. Because God's will and promise are certain. God does not lie. He knew what was ahead of him. And so he's anticipating it. But in his own heart and mind, it was a done deal. And so in all of this, God's sovereignty, his wisdom, his love, his power, his holiness, his justice were on display for the world to see. I say that through the work of sacrifice. You might be scratching your head and saying, how is that possible? Look with me at a few passages of Scripture just to confirm this. Go with me to Romans. Go with me to Romans. We're going to look at three passages. And by the way, we're going to be looking at a number of passages this morning. So keep your Bible handy, if you would. Romans 1, 16 and 17, these familiar words from the Apostle Paul, who says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died and He rose again according to the Scriptures. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Yes, it is. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I want us to look at verses 23 to 26 there. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just 
and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at Romans 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love is on display. His glory is on display. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So both the Son and the Father are glorified through Christ's sacrificial work. Yes, His sovereignty, His wisdom, His love, His power, His holiness, His justice, and so much more are on display. We were singing about that this morning, did we not? Yes. It's marvelous. It's awe-inspiring as you meditate upon it. I mean, no human mind could have come up with that plan. (laughs) Not at all. The cross was looked down with disdain. And yet, in it, the glory of God is revealed. That's how God the Father, that's how God the Son saw it. And you know, beloved, the way that God is glorified in our lives is by our personal sacrifice to Him. That's right. In fact, I was just talking with a young man this week who said that very thing, and he quoted to me Romans 12, 1 and 2. Those familiar words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove by experience that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yeah, the glory of God comes out of your life towards Him because of His sacrifice to you. Henry Bosch of the Daily Bread captured the significance of this truth in an article entitled, Where the Battle Lies. In 1636, a group of Puritans, I should say Miriam Booth, (laughs) daughter of the founder of the Salvation Army, was a brilliant and cultured woman who began her Christian work with great promise and unusual success. Very soon, however, disease brought her to the point of death. A friend told her it seemed a pity that a woman of her capabilities should be hindered by sickness from doing the Lord's work. With deep insight and gentle grace, Miriam replied, It's wonderful to do the Lord's work, but it's greater still to do the Lord's will. Think about that. Yes, that is where the battle lies, as Henry Bosch said. If, like Jesus, we delight to do the Father's will, then the work He assigns will be done with grace and without hesitation for His glory, no matter what the personal sacrifice may be. So may you be inspired by Jesus' work of sacrifice and do His will for His glory. Because of His sacrifice, we then in, in turn give ourselves away to Him and do His will for His glory.
Well, that leads right into another way. God's glory is manifested. And we see that there as Jesus continued in verses 2 and 3 to say this. Follow along. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What do you notice here? It's this. Jesus is glorified and brings glory to the Father through His granting of salvation. Through His granting of salvation. That's what is captured there in those two verses. What you have here in verses 2 and 3 is sort of an explanation for the glory coming to the Son and Father through the sacrifice of Jesus alluded there in verse 1. You see, because of it, Jesus has the authority to grant eternal life because of his sacrifice he gives us his life to those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world and that's what it means there in the second half of verse 2 when Jesus says this that to all whom you that is the father have given him that is the son he may give eternal life Those given to the Son are those chosen by God. And thus, in the providence of time, <laughs> He grants eternal life. They believe in Christ. And that's actually what Jesus preached earlier. This isn't the only time that Jesus speaks to it. We get more insight, actually, into what Jesus says here when you go back to John chapter 6. So go with me, if you would, there. John chapter 6. One of my favorite narratives in the Gospel of John. Just got done feeding the 5,000. They came because they wanted their stomachs full. And certainly he provided that monetary need in the moment. But really, it was about bringing them the truth. The bread of life. Jesus Christ and his message. And notice what Jesus said to them starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. He's not done yet. Look down with me at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And when he's drawn by the Father, the Father given them to him, I will raise him up on the last day. He's still not finished. He wants them to get this message. Look with me at the end of John 6, beginning with verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe And who it was that would betray him. 
And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so in granting eternal life to those given him by the Father, Jesus was, is doing the will of the Father. And both are glorified through it. And the question to be asked here is how? I asked myself that this week. How? That's where verse 3 comes into play. Having eternal life is not just about being with Jesus for eternity. That's part of it. No doubt about it. But it's more about possessing his life at present. Look with me at verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word know there is a very intimate word. The Greek word there is gnosko. It's speaking about a relationship as he says there. With the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Just pause for a moment and think about that. A relationship with the God of the universe. My, oh my. That's eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look with me further at 1 John. You know what John says in his gospel, he also says in his epistle. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. Likely you know these verses. Here recently I... Spoke on them in a funeral. This is the purpose for which John wrote. 1 John 5, beginning with verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son, you have Jesus, has the life, eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And then he says this in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know that you have eternal life? First of all, by believing on Jesus Christ. And second of all, by behaving like Jesus Christ. Because you have His life in you. And that's what 1 John is all about. How about Philippians 3 and verse 10? One of my favorite verses. What did Paul say? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Yeah, that's what eternal life is about in our everyday lives as Christians. So in possessing that life, you and I in turn live out and God gets the glory You see, this is because he's the only one that can take a ruined sinner dead in his trespasses and sins and show him his grace and mercy and change him into a rich saint. He's the only one that can do that, right? Amen? Yeah, we certainly can't do that. No, it takes God through Jesus Christ in bringing that about into our lives. I love Matthew 5.16. So let your light shine before men. Jesus was saying that on the Sermon on the Mount. So let your light shine before men. And that light is the life of God in you. 
So let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. If you have eternal life, the way to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ is by living that life out for Him. And you can. You have everything necessary for life and godliness. It's wonderful. Beloved, this is the main goal of life. As Vernon Grounds so aptly wrote, Yes, he wrote, in 1636, a group of Puritans founded Harvard University. Its motto was, for Christ and the church. Think about that. That was back in 1636. One of the school's guiding principles was this. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Coming from John 17 and verse 3. That prestigious center of learning and culture has long since abandoned its original spiritual intent. Even many Harvard Divinity School faculty mentors now regard its Christ-centered goal as narrow-minded and outdated. In fact, not long ago, a group of Harvard students staged a mock funeral procession through the Divinity School. They carried a coffin and proclaimed, Our God the Father is dead. Well, 350 years after the establishment of Harvard, the chief purpose of life is still and always will be in the words of those colonial Puritans to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Though Harvard doesn't abide by it, it's still true. Why? Because it's in God's word. (laughs) And God's word always stands true. What man believes, where man goes, is so passing. It's here today and gone tomorrow, but not God's word. It stands. That is our purpose. And so may you be reminded of that today and every day, that God granting you salvation and eternal life should lead you to glorifying the Son and Father through that life. And it's all possible because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so as we've already seen in this passage, Jesus is glorified And brings glory to the Father through his work of sacrifice and through his granting of salvation. But Jesus is not done yet. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. To what was he referring there? It's this, Jesus was glorified and brings glory to the Father through his exaltation to splendor. Through his exaltation to splendor. You see, having accomplished the work of redemption, as Jesus declared there in verse 4, he looked forward to being at the right hand of the Father as declared in verse 5. That's what was coming following that very thing. This is where he was before the world was created, right? Isn't that right? Sure it is. I mean, the beginning of Jesus' life happened long before that. He's God. (laughs) He's always existed. Did John speak to this? You bet he did. In the prologue of his gospel. Go back with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 
John 1. Verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word. Speaking of Christ Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's affirmed later in verse 14. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so by returning to His rightful place at the right hand of the Father, His deity and thus glory again, are on display. You see, His ascension vindicates who He was and is and all that He came to do. Let's go back to our Scripture reading. Again, there in Philippians chapter 2. Paul shares this and then applies it to us. But Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude he's speaking about is there in verses 3 and 4, which is demonstrated by what Christ came to do. And he explains that in verses 5 to 8. Have this attitude, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that it? Is that it? It's not it. There's more to come. Verses 9 to 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, how I pray this morning that all of you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, your Lord. Because if you haven't, you will one day, but it will be too late. In fact, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because He is. You see, along with the resurrection, the ascension lifts Jesus up as the great overcomer of sin and death. Yes. Again, turn with me to 1 John, where we see these things. We're going to look at a couple passages here. 1 John. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How is that demonstrated? He died on the cross. He rose again. And now He's ascended. He's the great overcomer of sin and death. But also, beyond that, He's the head of the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, this wonderful prayer. If you ever have the chance, study the prayers of the Apostle Paul in his epistles. They're wonderful. 
But Ephesians chapter 1, we have one of those prayers. And in the midst of this prayers, he exalts the Lord Jesus Christ in his ascension. Beginning with verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So yes, Jesus is the great overcomer of sin and death. He's the head of the church, but there is more. He lives to make intercession for his own. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. The writer says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, connecting it back to his resurrection and his ascension. You see, Jesus is just not in heaven retired. (laughs) There's so much more going on that he is doing on our behalf. He's interceding for us. Praise the Lord. That brings him glory. R.C. Sproul said these words, The ascension of Jesus was the supreme political event of world history. He ascended not so much to a place as to an office. He departed from the arena of humiliation and suffering to enter into his glory. He in one moment leapfrogged from the status of despised Galilean teacher to the cosmic king of the universe, jumping over the heads of Pilate, Herod, and Caesar Augustus. The ascension catapulted Jesus to the right hand of God, where he was enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. And we say amen to that, don't we? You bet. And so therefore, he should be honored for such a position by those of us who know Him. And so, beloved, as you leave here this morning, meditate upon Christ's splendor. It will bring assurance and security to your heart. Hope will be filled in your heart. And yet, on the other hand, may it inspire you to endurance and praise. You're familiar with those Words in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, (laughs) despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We do grow weary. We do lose heart, do we not? Yeah, there are moments like that. I mean, we live out in this world. There's no peace in this world. There's only tribulation. Thank God this past week that Roe versus Wade was turned over. But we still don't know the end of the story yet. And yet you know 
For those who hate that, it may be very troubling for Christians out there who take a stand for those kind of things. But what brings us hope, what brings us security and assurance to our soul is knowing that Jesus has been resurrected. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of God the Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, in control of all things. We can entrust ourselves to him, can we not? And bring glory to him. (laughs) You bet. And so, as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. What we have, beloved, here in John 17 and verses 1 to 5 is a glorious start to this prayer from Jesus who longed to be glorified so that he might glorify the Father. You see, the the way that God, the Father, is glorified is as he is glorified. They work hand in hand. How? Well, as we saw this morning through the work of sacrifice, through his granting of salvation and his exaltation to splendor. All of those principles are right there in that passage of Scripture and therefore are for us to follow as well. You see, this glorification was and is primarily about doing the purposes and will of the Father. And in principle form, the same is true for God's children. As I said earlier, in our introduction. I did that on purpose. And so may you be inspired to glorify God because of what He has accomplished through Christ and then glorify Him by doing His will and fulfilling His purposes for your life. As outlined where? Where do we know God's will? Huh? Through His Word. As you live out the Word of God, you glorify the Lord. You're doing His will. In fact, turn with me back to John chapter 8. Jesus said this very thing of himself. We want to follow the example of Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 29 and following. John 8, 29 and following. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things... Many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. God's blessings to you as you learn and follow Jesus in this way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and just giving us a glimpse, so to speak, in the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ as to the glory that he desired, that he longed for. Indeed, he is glorified and so is the Father, you, O God, through his work of sacrifice, through his granting of salvation and through his exaltation to splendor. All of these are true And sometimes we can look at these principles and say, okay, they happened. But really, they are meant to be applied to us as we live here today. And so because of your great sacrifice, O Lord, 
we are to sacrifice ourselves to you. Because of your great salvation, which we have, the eternal life which we possess, oh God, we are to live out that eternal life and bring you glory. And you've made it all possible because of the resurrection and ascension. You now are at the right hand of God the Father, O Lord. You've completed your work. And so we praise you for that exalted position who is in control of all things here as we live today. So encourage us with these thoughts today and help us to please you, O God, just the way the Lord Jesus pleased you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.